mountains that I face. Rewind a few thousand years from the time Jesus tells this parable to the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, and we find a similar theme. Going all the way back to Jonah, God sent Jonah to prophesy to the people of Nineveh. Jonah did not believe that the people of this foreign land were within the reach and scope and scale of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. In fact, Jonah wanted those people destroyed. Oh, how it disappointed Jonah that God's grace extended all the way to the people of Nineveh. It never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, seemingly one after the next, threats of nuclear war. There's plenty to be afraid of out there. I wonder what you're afraid of this morning. I wonder what fears you have. And I wonder how you, you cope with those fears. What allows you to live abundantly even in the midst of your own fears? We have a familiar parable in front of us this morning uh, of Jesus, and as is always the case, how we interpret this parable, how we hear it, depends on our perspective, where we locate ourselves relative to the story. Early one morning, Jesus says a landowner heads down to the marketplace, to the spot where people looking for work hang out, and he hires a handful of them to work on his Land and he agrees to pay them the usual daily wage. So we pause to reflect upon the reality that being among the first hired, being hired right at sunrise, was such a blessing. No matter how difficult the work is, no matter how scorching hot the day may be, what's going through your mind throughout that day is at least I know Tomorrow my children will eat. At least I know we have enough for the coming day. They all agreed to work. By 9 o'clock in the morning, it's clear that the landowner needs some more workers, so he goes back to the same location and hires some others. And now I think, imagine how discouraging it was after that second round of hiring to still be standing there in the corner having not been hired. By lunchtime, Those still there have to be losing any hope of being hired on this day. But at noon, this landowner goes back yet again and hires more people. And there's a group still hanging around at the spot well into the afternoon. Maybe they had nowhere else to go. You know, kind of uh, small support group develops there. And they all kind of commiserate together and stay together because of their similar predicaments or maybe there's some kind of system whereby you know you moved up and held your place so that uh, you may be next to be hired I don't know but at three in the afternoon the landowner returns again and each time he brings back more workers into the vineyard and he promises this time to pay them whatever is right Uh, an interesting turn of phrase finally after Uh, long after anyone would have been hoping to be hired during that day. At five in the afternoon, with only an hour or two of daylight left, he returns one more time, 
and hires even more folks. So he goes back to the same spot, finds some other people standing around, doing nothing, says, haven't you got anything better to do? Come with me, I will put you to work. So imagine the day these people have had. As, you know, group after group gets hired on, and all they are left with is their own kind of worry, probably a sense of shame, and certainly some fear. How am I going to provide for my family? I wonder what you fear this morning. I wonder how you cope with those fears. Finally, the sun sets and everybody lines up to collect their day's pay, and this is where it gets interesting. The owner calls his field manager to settle things up and says, give everybody their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about 5 o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. When the very last to be hired stepped forward, the manager dropped a whole denarius, as the denomination, into their hand, and they are shocked. I mean, they only worked about an hour at the end of the day, the coolest part of the day. They probably gasped so loud that the people further back in line were, you know, trying to see what was going on up there. The last will be first, Jesus has said and continues to say, and that is borne out in this parable that he tells. So we try to imagine the others in line and what they must have been thinking at this point, scratching their heads and starting to do the math. They must have figured, well, if the old guy's paying those he just hired a full day's wage, imagine what he might be getting ready to give to us. We can almost see them rubbing their hands together and imagine the looks on their faces when they hold out their hands and discover that they also are receiving the usual daily wage. One denarius for everybody. Whether you showed up at dawn and slaved through the heat of the day, or got hired on at five just before quitting time. So when those who have been waiting at the front of the line received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, These last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. This phrasing sticks in my mind every time I hear it. Every time I read it, you have made them equal to us. And I wonder if I ever have this thought about anybody. About the refugee, maybe. I was here first. About the convicted criminal who decides he's come to faith in Jesus after doing the crime in some jailhouse conversion. It's when I set about comparing myself to somebody else, anybody else, that I get into trouble. The landowner reminded them that he has kept his part of the bargain. He's paid them exactly what they had agreed to. And what business is it of theirs what he pays the other laborers? And he asks them, are you envious because I am generous? Well, that stings, doesn't it? What about equal pay for equal work? 
What about rewarding those who have earned it, who deserve it most? Who do you think is going to be there tomorrow morning before dawn waiting to get hired on in this kind of economy where the last get paid the same as the first? Jesus isn't teaching about this kingdom, but about the kingdom of heaven. I'm guessing you don't like this parable any more than I do. It's not fair. It isn't. And we hear stories like this all the time. The people who work hard all their lives and then get passed over for the promotion. Or, or the kind and generous person who is stricken with some rare disease. They certainly did not deserve You would hope that God would be able to see who deserves what. You would think that if anybody could, God could see who should be at the front of the line. So, how should we hear this parable? It's a matter of perspective. Apparently, we tend to hear this story from the perspective of those who locate ourselves in the back of the line, right? We are the ones who feel like we got up early and we started working and we worked hard all day. We stayed late. Somehow somebody messed up and started paying people at the wrong end of the line. And and so we are back to being the older sibling in the other parable Jesus tells on this theme. We stay home. We did our chores We went to church every Sunday. We followed the rules. Meanwhile, our younger brother went off to a foreign land and blew half of our parents' money and then comes crawling back, looking for work, and Dad throws a party. It's the same story. And in that story that Jesus tells, the father says to the older sibling, My child... You are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we should be glad and celebrate. Your brother was dead, but he is now alive. He was lost and has now been found. Last week, Natalia talked about Peter's struggle with the scale and the scope of God's grace and mercy. Peter's like, wait. How many times do I need to forgive? Is it seven? It seems like a good number. Right? It's, good. it's a Bible number, seven, the number of completion. Peter thought he was bragging when he threw that number out there. I'm getting it, Jesus. Your grace has a further reach than any of us were really quite ready to accept, but I get it. How many times do I need to forgive then? Is it seven? And Jesus says, 70 times seven. You don't get it. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus teaches us to pray. Forgive us. God always acts first. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does not wait for you to get your act together. You can only counter 
punch with God. There, there are no preemptive strikes. I choose you, God says. To which we generally say in a thousand different ways, Oh, no, you don't. I choose you. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I invite you into my heart. And Jesus comes along and says, Get down out of that tree. I'm going to your house. Wait. I haven't even done anything yet. Exactly. God's grace is out of control. Which is to say, we are not able to control the grace of God. That has always been a problem. In some way, every major story in the Bible from the Garden of Eden forward relates to this problem. I will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I will have some control over my destiny. It's about control. But God's grace is not ours to control. Rewind a few thousand years from the time Jesus tells this parable to the story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Stacy read. And we find a similar theme. Going all the way back to Jonah, God sent Jonah to prophesy to the people of Nineveh. Jonah did not believe that the people of this foreign land were within the reach and scope and scale of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. In fact, Jonah wanted those people destroyed. Oh, how it disappointed Jonah that God's grace extended all the way to the people of Nineveh. And so Jonah said, I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew it. You can just see Jonah shaking his fist. This is part of our liturgy. It's funny that it's actually an accusation that's being leveled against God. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. I can't stand how unfair this grace is. And I can't control it. Here's what I want to say. Especially to those of us who have been singing about it our whole lives and relying upon it and resting in it. And because of all of that, we've tamed it a little bit. Grace is not easy. It is certainly not cheap. God's grace is the most powerful force in the universe, and we cannot control it. And I cannot compare the grace I have received to your grace. There is nothing fair about grace. It's simply not about fairness. So what are you afraid of? What fears do you have and how are you able to cope with those fears and live an abundant life while those fears are a part of your reality? Are you still able to do that?
ask what is grace. Um, if you look at that amazing African-American spiritual, amazing grace, what grace is, is that line. It's grace that taught my heart to fear. So when you say, are you afraid of the dark? Yeah, I am so afraid of the dark, but grace has taught my heart to fear. I know how to be afraid. I used to not know how to be afraid. Um, I used to, in fear, get perfect, get controlling, get blaming, get mean, run. I would do anything I could do. Um, and I think that's a huge learning from Rising Strong is we don't know how to be afraid. And so I don't know that there are any teachers as capable as Grace when it comes to learning how to be in fear. Um, and grace is not, again, the thing that makes you unafraid. It's the thing that whispers, you know how to be afraid, it's okay. You can be afraid. Because I've never done anything meaningful, and I can almost say nothing meaningful in my career. Or let me rephrase it, the most meaningful things I've ever done in my life personally and professionally, have all been born of fear and vulnerability. Every talk I've given that was important, every book I've written, deciding to have kids, birthing those kids, raising those kids, it's all scary. Um, but Grace has taught my heart to fear. So, if you forget everything I just said, forget about Jonah, Forget about Nineveh. Forget about those who were paid a full day's wage even though they only worked an hour in the cool evening of the day. Just forget about all of it. And hear this. As a called and ordained minister of the Church of Christ and by his authority, I therefore declare to you, you sitting there right now in this room with me this morning, I declare to you the entire forgiveness of all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is the grace of God. It is the most powerful force in the universe. It is always pushing outward. God will swallow up reluctant prophets with sea monsters and have them puked out on the shore of a foreign heathen land so that the grace can reach there as well. Well, it reached you just now here this moment, this day in this room all of your history led you to this moment and what you have heard is that God's grace reaches you as well you are the